This is The Josh Hammer Show. What does it mean to be America first? Does America first mean a return to America in retreat? To hermit America? To fortress America? To hear the likes of Tucker Carlson and some others in Tucker's orbit, that is indeed what America first means. It doesn't necessarily mean America first. It means shrinking America and only America. That is not the America first as it was developed by the Trump administration. That was not the foreign policy of the Trump presidency. I've been in an extended back and forth on this point. I wrote a recent column that engendered numerous responses pushing back on me. America first is a term that has a long pedigree in American statesmanship and American foreign policy. It actually was first brought into the public discourse, very dubious vintage here, by the infamous Woodrow Wilson, one of the most disgraceful presidents in the history of the Republic, a monstrous, virulent racist who screened the Ku Klux Klan film Birth of a Nation in the White House. He gave us the modern administrative state. He was schooled in grotesque German philosophy, Hegel, all this garbage. Garbage man. The term America First then caught on with Charles Lindbergh, the America First Committee, which existed for barely over a year. People forget how short-lived it was because then Pearl Harbor happens in 1941. And then America First comes back under Donald Trump. A very basic, prosaic, patriotic call. Kind of the natural corollary, you might say, to MAGA, to make America great again. But how do I know that America first, as the Trump administration meant it and indeed implemented it in office, was not what Tucker and Candace Owens and some of, some of these other true Ron Paul-esque hermit America, fortress America types are saying it? Because Trump acted that way and because his alums from his White House said as much. There is a fantastic essay in Foreign Policy Magazine from the year 2019, written by a guy by the name of Michael Anton. Does that name sound familiar? Michael Anton has been affiliated with the Claremont Institute and Hillsdale College for many years. He wrote the essay back in September 2016, the Flight 93 election. It should ring a bell. That essay that Anton wrote under a pseudonym was credited more than any other writing with getting Trump over the finish line, with getting never-Trumpers and those who did not want to pull the trigger for Trump to get out and vote for him. Rush Limbaugh, may his memory be a blessing, read the entirety of that essay on air to his national audience. Anton then went into the Trump administration as a National Security Council spokesman, among other roles. And in this essay in 2019, called The Trump Doctrine, he outlined what... America first actually means. This is Michael Anton. He says, quote, So the fact that Trump is not a neoconservative or a paleoconservative, neither a traditional realist nor a liberal internationalist, has caused endless confusion. The same goes for the fact that he has no inborn inclination to isolationism. Let me say that again. The same goes for the fact that he has no inborn inclination to isolationism or interventionism. And he is not simply a dove or a hawk. His foreign policy doesn't easily fit into any of these categories, though it draws from all of them. 
That is exactly what I have been arguing in this extended colloquy, this back and forth that I've been having with various writers and commentators for the past two weeks now. You can try to retcon to engage in revisionist history on the Trump presidency all you want. You can try to make him out to be the Ron Paul of your imagination. You can engage in such sophomoric LARPing, be fit for a freshman seminar in your local community college. You can do that if you want to. That was not the Trump presidency. Did he show tremendous restraint at times? Absolutely. Was he an unabashed nationalist who wanted the NATO allies in Europe to beef up their defense spending? Yes. Did he also bomb and kill Qasem Soleimani in Iraq? Yes. Did he also put missile defense in Central and Eastern Europe to ward off Vladimir Putin? Yes, 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 all of the above. Anyway, foreign policy, unfortunately, has really never been more important as we look around the world, and in particular, as we look at the current situation in the Middle East with the U.S. retaliation, the reprisals on the Iranian regime and their various proxies in full flare right now as our great ally, the state of Israel, still finds itself in this struggle against Hamas and Hezbollah. And to that end, we're bringing on here Johnny Daniels, founder and executive director of From the Depths, a wonderful organization that does great work for the righteous among the nations. Stay with us for a quick break. We'll be right back with Johnny Daniels talking all things Middle East. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We're joined by Johnny Daniels. Johnny is the founder and executive director of From the Depths, a wonderful organization that, among other things, takes care of the righteous among the nations, those surviving Gentiles who helped save Jews during the Shoah, during the Holocaust. He is deeply active in global politics in general, certainly including Israeli politics. And we wanted to bring Johnny onto the show to talk about October 7th, the months that have passed since then, and what by many accounts is rapidly becoming something quite a bit more than I think many anticipated when it comes to possible regional escalation. Let's start out on the 7th itself. You and I were talking offline a little bit, and I had forgotten that you were you were not in Israel on the 7th. You were actually in, in Cyprus, of all countries, which I know is a, is, is a popular spot for many Israelis to go off for a quick vacation, quick weekend getaway of sorts to. Did you immediately fly back to Israel, or, or what, what did you do in the, in the first few days after you heard about the pogrom of October 7th? Right. Well, well I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. I was, uh, I'd taken my daughters. Um, I, have, I have two kids, a uh, 14-year-old and a 10-year-old, and we'd gone for 
from the Jewish, the end of the Jewish festival, they'd gone for Simchat Torah, um, one of the most joyous and beautiful of Jewish festivals. We'd gone away just for the weekend. Um, it's a quick hour flight from Tel Aviv. We'd hopped over to Cyprus. Uh, and I'll never forget that morning. Um, my phone was beeping, beeping, and beeping, and beeping. And, and it was Shabbat in the morning. I try not to answer the phone. And I, I look down, and everybody's calling me. Um, and, and just that initial shock of, wait, what the hell is going on? Uh, as so many of us faced on that day. Um, and it, it was just the most horrendous experience, um, just watching it unfold and unfold from afar. Uh, I think that made it even, you know, more difficult in a sense, the fact that I wasn't there. Uh, however, you know, thank God I was with my kids and, you know, they were safe and I was safe and, you know, we had that for us. And then the big question came of, okay, how are we going to get back to Israel? All the flights were grounded. You know, everybody, the hotel was packed with Israelis. Just everybody was walking around with these somber faces and tears in their eyes. Um, so what I decided to do at that time was actually to take my kids uh, and fly them to to my family in London, England, uh, where I grew up. Uh, my, a lot of my family still live um, to enable them to feel that sort of safety at the time. You remember it wasn't just October 7th in terms of the pogrom that was happening on ground, but thousands of missiles were being shot towards Israel. Everybody was running for bomb shelter. And that kind of feeling of nervousness, I wanted to at least allow my kids to to, to feel safe within that scenario. So quickly, I sure. my kids and put them into London. Johnny, you've done a ton of media since October 7th. Your social media profile has grown quite a bit. I, I see you all over television. Is Israel winning this conflict? And we all know the answer to that from a PR perspective. Unfortunately, it seems like the answer all too often is no. But maybe you can flesh it out of perhaps I'm being overly pessimistic and bearish on just the PR angle. But more importantly, frankly, from from an actual battlefield perspective here when it comes to actually retaking operational control of Gaza City, of Khan Yunus, and actually knocking out Hamas terrorists, actually making inroads on the elaborate subterranean terror tunnel network that is colloquially known as the Gaza Metro. As, as far as the actual military nuts and bolts, what what is your assessment of the current state of things there in Gaza? Well, I, look, I mean, there's a brilliant question, right? Because so many people will either tend to look at it one way or the other. Um, and from a PR perspective, it's clearly difficult. Uh, and clearly it's a battle that we're having a very, very difficult time with. Um, but but I think that was a given. I don't think that there was any question that this was going to be something that was going to be incredibly hard for us uh, as Jews and as Israelis to, to even begin um, to, to attempt to fight uh, a very skewed battle from the start. Uh, but at the end of the day, that's not really what's important. What's important is the fact that we are winning on ground. Uh, Israel's doing tremendously well. Uh, the IDF is, you know, really grabbed themselves fast after that initial shock of October 7th. Uh, and the military action of the IDF has been incredibly sort of decisive and strong when it comes to dealing on ground with Hamas terrorists. And we also have to understand that it's a very difficult battle to fight. You know, we're, we're fighting you know, in terms of, you know, in Israel, we'd call it surgical fighting. So this isn't just, you know, you enter a town and just shoot whatever you see. This is very, very delicate, very difficult, very surgical form of warfare where we have to be incredibly careful because we have no interest 
in, God forbid, killing civilians or hurting people that aren't involved. You know, we're, we're looking for one thing and one thing only, and that is for Hamas terrorists and making sure that they don't have this opportunity again um, because they've said it very clearly that they would do it over and over again, and we know that. Um, and there's no feeling also, no question of the feeling in Israel as well, which is completely across the board from far right to far left and everything in between. Everybody absolutely understands that there needs to be the absolute elimination of Hamas. And so what we saw initially uh, was an incredibly strong response from the IDF, where we effectively cut Gaza in two, coming in from the sea mainly, basically splitting northern and southern Gaza. In northern Gaza, a lot of Hamas outposts and military strongholds, they have all fallen um, entirely. And now the battle's really taking place towards the south, where we see this very, very strong military action of the IDF in Khan Yunis, where we know that a lot of Hamas leadership are, where a lot of this Hamas terror tunnels are taken, uh, are really centralized and, and placed. And even there, we're seeing, you know, you have to also understand that the, the technological advances of the IDF are quite remarkable as well. And even in terms of the weapons that we use, they're they're just unbelievable these are things that no one's ever seen before you know for example a lot of the listeners on this show would have never heard of a thing as a sponge bomb a sponge bomb was a military development of the idf that effectively explodes at the entrance to a to the top of a tunnel uh, it shoots out a form of liquid concrete that will completely seal the exit and entrance of that tunnel entirely uh, which able which enables us to have a strong operational um, advantage in dealing with a specific area because also we're dealing with a very densely populated area where we have a fight above ground and then a fight underground as well. And you can imagine that you think that you've dealt with an area and then suddenly you're in some kind of crazy whack-a-mole situation where terrorists are just popping up out of tunnels from every single place you can imagine. The, the, the tunnel system is remarkably vast and it's not, you know, how one would imagine. You know, when we see a, a metro map, you see clear lines and some kind of, you know, system in which they've been built. What's right. effectively been built on ground in Gaza is some kind of spider's web of, of crazy. And they can go up to six floors below ground and different areas and sections, a very difficult situation to fight in. Uh, but we're doing a remarkable job. We have drones that go inside first and foremost. Our Ockets unit, which is our dogs, go inside and take care of these tunnels. And th there's a lot to be to be proud of in terms of how the IDF is fighting uh, in a very moral uh, fashion on ground inside of Gaza, really minimalizing civilian losses, which is unfortunately a part of any kind of warfare. Um, but, you know, we've seen this in the past when other armies, United States, United Kingdom have gone to war, it's just obliterating the enemy from above, dropping whatever we want on them, killing whoever we want, and that way pushing forward. The IDF hasn't done that. We've been deliberate and surgical in our actions. And it's actually that deliberateness and the surgical nature of, of the actions that I don't, I don't want to say I want to push back on, but I, I, I want to press a little further here. So uh, going back at least as far as the 2014 conflict, which was the last time that there was an actual land incursion into Gaza, that was when this IDF tactic of dropping leaflets on buildings, for instance, to warn the residents of the buildings to flee, uh, the, the IDF really has tried to 
to pride itself on, on being the world's mo most moral military and, and, and successfully so on the actual substantive merits from my perspective. I, they genuinely do seem to go above and beyond, frankly, even what the United States military does when it comes to kind of a, a tit for tat basis there. I, I, I worry, Johnny, my worry is that this is coming at such a great cost with very little value add from a public relations perspective. So put another way, basically no matter what the IDF is going to do, the same usual suspects are always going to kind of rise up and say the same very nasty and oftentimes anti-Semitic things about purported genocide. I mean, you know, you know, to take a very concrete example, these very moral tactics that the IDF has innovated has certainly not stopped South Africa from pursuing its sham of a genocide charge at the ICJ, the International Court of Justice. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side of the ledger, it is resulting in a, a, a lot of high casualty and higher profile casualty incidents from Israel's own soldiers inside Gaza, this very deliberate kind of door to door, tunnel by tunnel tactic and all the above. So I, I, I'm curious how how you see that, how, how you see both sides of that balancing out there. Is Israel going too far to try to appease its critics that will ultimately never be appeased? Well, I mean, there's two points to this. Uh, I think the first point is in terms of appeasing critics, I, I don't think that that is any kind of deliberation from our perspective. These people are going to exist. They've always been there. They're always going to be there. If it's not anti-Semitism, it's anti-Zionism, it's anti-Israel, it's anti-this, it's anti-that. We're used to that by this point. At the end of the day, our soldiers will go home to their families. They need to sleep at night. They need to know that they've done all that they can to do what's right. And this is a major factor in terms of how we deal with everything. We, we're moral not because of uh, an interest in showing off or making us look better on an international stage. We're moral because it's the right thing to do and because that's what we care about. You know, at the end of the day, we, we, we didn't want this war. We don't want any war. We don't want to kill innocent people. We have no interest in it. The, the, the moral aspect of this doesn't really factor in terms of a perspective of attempting to show the world community of how wonderful they are, it's really more based on the fact that we do it because it's the right thing to do. Now, when it comes to the other side of that question, when we're dealing with um, the, the issues connected to uh, soldiers on ground and potentially putting them at danger because of this high level of morality, it's also not entirely true either. Uh, the fact is, is that there isn't a way really to fight this war without boots on ground. You can't, even if we wanted to, even if we were crazy and just wanted to blow the whole place up by air, you can't really deal with tunnels in that fashion. We also have an additional issue, which is the fact that they're holding our hostages. Right. Right. So, you know, if we were just to obliterate Gaza by air, you know, unfortunately, we'd end up killing a lot of our own. And in addition to that, kill many, 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 many innocent people. But we'll also not really deal with the issue because of the underground systems. So we have to have uh, troops on, on, on ground and fighting, again, systematically and surgically inside of Gaza. We're joined here by Johnny Daniels. He's the founder and executive director of From the Depths. Johnny, I want to continue that conversation on the hostages point. We're going to take it to a very quick commercial break here. So stay with us. We'll be right back with more with our conversation with Johnny Daniels. This is The Josh Hammer Show.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're back here with John Daniels, founder and executive director of From the Depths. Johnny, before the break, we were talking about the hostages and how that is one of many factors that is complicating, from a military perspective, Israel's goal of eradicating Hamas in Gaza. But from the beginning of the conflict, the Israeli government has had multiple goals. The complete eradication of Hamas is one, but returning all of the hostages is another enunciated goal. And I think for a time being, at the beginning of the conflict, some thought that these two goals were mutually self-reinforcing, that it, you would do harm to Hamas, therefore they might try to beg for mercy by giving up hostages. But over the past couple of months, it's, it's become fairly clear to, to many, and myself very much included, that these two goals are actually now in tension with one another, and that by pursuing one, you perhaps do undermine the other goal. And there's a ton of controversy right now about this. There is an emerging hostage deal that I think those who prioritize the eradication of Hamas are, are extremely, extremely skeptical of. You have Edomar Ben-Gavir, who's a very conservative member of the Knesset, who was threatening to blow up Prime Minister Netanyahu's entire coalition, actually, if they go ahead with any deal that could undermine the ultimate goal to eradicate Hamas there. How do you bounce these two goals in Gaza, and is there one goal that should take ultimate priority, if need be, over the other? Well, I, I, I see it slightly differently to you. Uh, I, I don't see um, there being any... I, I see them entirely connected. First of all, we saw that with the first hostage deal that took place. The only reason that we got those hostages back was because of the swift action of the IDF, and a very strong reaction of the IDF as well. It kind of shook up uh, Sinwar and the Hamas leadership in the side of Gaza, who needed that break uh, to kind of recoup and bring their troops back together and, and figure out how they continue to fight us. And I think even now, uh, when we're looking at this potential hostage deal taking place, I'm certain that we wouldn't even be in a position of talking if it wasn't for the fact that we're literally standing on top of Sinwar's bunker in Khan Yunus right now. Uh, I, they are connected, uh, very much so. The in terms of the hostage deal that could potentially take place, and there's a lot of different details. There was this Paris Accord that took place last weekend uh, in Europe where there was a discussion of what would be given in in, in lieu of receiving our hostages back. Th this is kind of where it gets a little bit tricky, right? Because, you know, we are offering a tremendous amount, and it's obviously remarkably skewed. There's everything up to, you know, the potential of 150 terrorists with blood on their hands including those who took part in the October 7th massacre against Israel, who will be released for hostages. So you have situations in which, you know, you're going to have a man who's being kept in Gaza, whose family was murdered on October 7th. He was taken in. The murderers of his family will be released to bring him back. Now, whilst it sounds very difficult, we don't have a choice in terms of Israel. We don't have a choice at all. We need to get these hostages back. 
And at the end of the day, these it's not a situation in which soldiers were taken during war. These hostages were plucked from their beds in their pajamas as a result of poor planning by Israel's military, unfortunately, and Israel's security forces. And as a result of such, they have to do everything to bring them home. The onus then falls on our military to make sure that these people who we've released are then dealt with after that, to make sure that it doesn't happen again. So whilst it's not, it's clearly an awful deal, and a deal that none of us are happy about, what are you going to do when you've got to make a deal with the devil? And, and this is the difficult part of this equation. None of us like it, none of us want it, but less than we like it and we want it, we want our hostages home. These people need to come back. By this point, they've been over 121 days being held hostage inside of Gaza. You know, we know, for example, that people like Ariel Bibas, the father of the Bibas children that everybody's heard of, these two beautiful young ginger boys who's being held inside of Gaza, he was held for at least 50 days at the beginning in effectively a cage underground. Well, John, sorry to cut you off, but let me, let me, let me ask this. Do you worry about the fact that the hostage cause is being cynically exploited by some far left actors, by the Haaretzes of the world, the, the anti-Zionist people within Israel itself who are, who are seeking to get Israel out of Gaza before the mission is due. It, see, it seems to me like there are at least some factions within Israel that are trying to, to exploit the hostages as an ulterior means through which to prematurely end the military mission in Gaza. I think there's obviously potentially that, that factor, but I, I truly don't believe it makes a difference. You also have to understand, uh, as I said before, that in, internally inside of Israel, we're so far away from that point already. Like, you, you've not seen a situation in which our media, which does most definitely lean strongly towards the left, you know, it, you, you hear these people talking every single day about the absolute need for the, for the eradication of Hamas inside of Gaza. This isn't something that's going to suddenly stop. No leader of Israel, whether it be Netanyahu now or anybody coming after, would have even close to a mandate if part of that mandate wasn't the eradication of Hamas. No one wants that. We, we don't forget that we have tens of thousands of citizens who are, who are effectively refugees inside of Israel, unable to return to their homes in the south, and over 70,000, 80,000 citizens who are unable to return to their homes in the north as a result of this conflict. So it, 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 regardless of, of bad actors on either side, it doesn't really make a difference. At the end of the day, this war does not end without the eradication of Hamas, and I'm 100% certain of that. Well, once again, you've quite nicely teed up where I was going to go with my next question, Johnny, which is let, let's bring the United States into the fold here. So the, the Biden administration, this is an election year. It, there are very close polls in many of the swing states. I actually was in Detroit, Michigan this past week giving a talk I, I, at the same time that Joe Biden himself was campaigning in the suburbs of Detroit. He is very worried uh, about some of these largely Muslim suburbs outside Detroit, towns like Dearborn, Michigan. Michigan is just one example of a swing state where the president is polling quite underwater at this time, but he knows that he needs to shore up support from his far left base, including Arab Americans and Muslim Americans in general. And this is leading him to take some extraordinary actions, such as this unprecedented sanctioning 
of so-called settlers in the so-called West Bank, uh, otherwise known as Jews living in the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria, but I digress. And it is leading him to do other things to apply all sorts of pressure to once again try to end this war, I think, prematurely. And I, I think that we, or at least I fear, Johnny, that we're rapidly approaching a point where there is going to be a, a fairly direct standoff between Netanyahu and his war cabinet, especially if the country is as unified on these questions as, as you're saying they are still a few months after the October 7th pogrom. What's, what's going to happen if slash one, if slash when that direct standoff happens? You know, if Joe Biden holds the proverbial gun to the head of Netanyahu and says, you know, uh, we are going to do X, Y, Z things. We'll stop vetoing terrible stuff at the United Nations. We're going to cut off weapons. Is Israel going to stand up to the Biden administration if need be? I don't think we'll have a choice. Um, look, I think it, it, we have to be honest here. We have to also understand that we're not just dealing with one front. There are seven to eight fronts of this war. Uh, and this war isn't just Israel-Gaza. We're Israel-Hamas. We're also dealing with a very problematic situation in the north with Hezbollah. We have a very tricky issue with the Houthis inside of Yemen. You know, and the, 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 the head of the octopus in this entire thing is obviously Iran. So when we're looking and you've got the players, of, you know, how Russia plays into this, how China plays into what's happening in North Korea, all of these things kind of play into this scenario in which also Israel understands on one hand that, that we, we can't do this alone. We do most definitely need the support of the United States for this. But also, I'm not sure that we get to that point because don't forget that this is a mutual relationship. As much as Israel needs America, America needs Israel. You have soldiers literally even last night being attacked and killed in the Middle East. United States soldiers being hit by Iran proxies all through the Middle East. When it comes to countries like Syria, the United States relies heavily, heavily on Israel with from our military understanding and from our intelligence gathering this is a mutual relationship. So as much as there might be a push from the administration, and, and we saw that there was leaked reports just a couple of days ago that showed that that, that, that Biden was pushing Netanyahu for a four-month ceasefire to release the hostages, a four-month entire ceasefire with the pullback of all of our troops from Gaza. This, this is something that would be very, very difficult for us to deal with. Um, and, you know, this attack on, on the so-called settlers in Judea and Samaria, these four people, you know, how America's sanctioning four Israelis, including one guy who literally all, well, I mean, he committed a crime, he graffitied the car. But to be called out by the President of the United States, when you have Iranians who are not called out, this is clearly sort of pandering to, to, to that demographic, which is obviously a problem for us um, and something that we didn't like and no one in Israel like that necessarily um but i don't think that we necessarily are going to get to that point because at the end of the day as i said this is a mutual relationship and truly truly as much as we need america america needs israel as well this relationship isn't just based on america from the goodness of their heart supporting the jews right this is much much deeper and much more important than that and especially when we're dealing with a potentially massive global crisis the need of israel the use of Israel for the United States is even higher than, than, than we can begin to imagine. Well, you would certainly think that most people would realize that it's more than just touchy 
kind of feel goody sentiments or guilt from the Holocaust or anything. Not the United States was directly complicit in the Holocaust, obviously, but you would like to think that it was. It didn't help Jews. Yes, the Roosevelt administration, and we'll, we'll, we'll sidebar that conversation yeah. for another day. Certainly, the FDR administration acted quite shamefully in, in, in many, perhaps even most aspects of its handling of, of that conflict as it pertains to the Jews. But let, let's sidebar that. But you would certainly hope that the American people watching what's happening now with the deaths of the three American soldiers at Tower 22 in Jordan and, and the fact that the, that the United States is now responding – in, in uh, retaliatory fashion when it comes to strikes in Iraq and Syria and teaming up with the UK and all sorts of other countries around the world when it comes to taking on the Houthi rebels in Yemen. We'll, we'll see what comes of that, but you definitely would like to see, Johnny. You would you would hope that the American people would, would realize that we're, I mean, we're quite literally bombing the same people. I mean, I, I mean, no matter, you, you know, no matter what your religion or your worldview or, or, or your ethics or this or that, you would like you would like to think that people would be commonsensical enough to realize that when you're bombing the same people, you're probably on the same side of, of, of the civilizational struggle. And I'm kind of curious just more for your thoughts then as we are looking at the Middle East and as we are looking at a potentially greater conflagration there, God forbid, but who knows exactly how Iran is going to respond to this series of reprisals on their various proxies in Iraq and Syria, to say nothing of the Houthis, which is just one of many Iranian proxies, Hezbollah in Lebanon, another Iranian proxy. Uh, Putting on kind of your your prognostication hat here how do you see this playing out over the next month or two and if god forbid it does become a broader regional conflagration is that better or worse from israel's more narrow perspective of defeating hamas and keeping hezbollah at bay look i mean i think it's enough to maybe take that very 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 wide question and just look at the situation in the north of israel Right? So if we look at the situation in the north of Israel, we have daily attacks uh, by Hezbollah, um, by the Iranian uh, proxy shooting towards Israeli villages, Israeli settlements, as I mentioned before, up to 80,000 Israelis uh, who had to leave their towns and living all across the country in very, very bad situation and circumstance. Uh, it's it's challenging uh, tremendously on a mental health level and so many others as well. The fact is, is that, you know, it, it's no... There's no question here that at some point Israel is going to need to deal with Hezbollah. Uh, we can't allow uh, genocidal maniacs to be sitting on our northern border. Uh, there is no question or doubt that they looked at the events of October 7th and the Hamas Jihad Islam and supposed innocent civilians of Gaza who stormed Israel and, and did the, the most tremendously awful attacks on our citizens and understand that the Hezbollah fighters would be very, very happy to do the same. And so Israel doesn't have any choice but to effectively deal with this one way or another. Uh, right now, we're still giving a level of hope to some kind of diplomatic resolve. Um, but if Israel does attack Lebanon which and Hezbollah inside of Lebanon, which may well happen, then we are going to see a broadening of a global conflict very, very quickly. This isn't Hamas, where Iran will just watch from the side and watch them fall. Iran won't allow that to happen to Hezbollah. This sucks Iran into the war. If that's the case, then we have no other choice. The United States also is going to get involved. And we're going to see a very, very wide broadening of this conflict incredibly fast. This is the reason why there's such a massive focus by the United States to stop that war happening in the North. Um, And, you know, one does question that if this was not an election year, 
would the the perspective of the United States be different? Because as you said, the 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 there's a reason why all leaders of the free world ran to Israel within the first month of this conflict, because they understood that we are the forefront of this. You know, we are fighting everybody else's battle here. If God forbid Israel is to fall here, this isn't suddenly the end of it. It's not suddenly, oh, the Palestinians are going to have all of Israel. Yay. They're coming for you next. And it's very, very clear on that. It's enough to see what's happening in the streets of Europe. When you have hundreds of thousands of people marching along sides for, for, for the destruction of Israel in London, in Berlin, you know, truly all around the world, this is a very, very worrying thing. And I think most decent, normal people can see and understand this. And, and I, I do believe that in the end of the day, truth prevails and, and people do open their eyes and wake up to this because, you know, if they don't, it's all going to be quite too late. Um, and, and this is, you know, again, we're at the forefront of this battle. Um, and we're going to win it regardless. We have no choice. We have nowhere else to go. But I think if America doesn't start and the people here don't start really kind of starting to understand a little bit broader of, of what's at tail here, again, this isn't just Israel and Hamas. This isn't just a situation in Gaza. It's so much bigger and broader than that. Uh, I think that, that, that this could become a, a very big shock for a lot of people. So we've been talking with Johnny Daniels. He's the founder and executive director of From the Depths. You can follow him on Instagram where his profile has really blown up. He's at Johnny Daniels on Instagram. Johnny, thanks so much for joining the program. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bay Area School District spent a quarter million dollars on a woke kindergarten program. And what do you think happened? The test scores fell even further. So woke kindergarten is a for-profit organization that ostensibly exists to train teachers in confronting the great civilizational evils of white supremacy and depression. And now that we are two years into this three-year contract with the school district out in California, student achievement has actually fallen even further there. Uh, what, what the heck is woke kindergarten? And why the heck is there a for-profit company that is trying to financially profit, that is trying to reap financial rewards off of the intellectual and moral bankrupting of this country's youth? You know, once upon a time in kindergarten, I think back to many moons ago when I was there myself, you know, you learned some pretty good, important life lessons, but nonetheless, some pretty simple lessons when it came to kindergarten. You know, how about learning to nap on time, nap time? How about playing with blocks? How about learning about the barter system and how much each person subjectively values their goods? God forbid we have horrific organization, which apparently empirically fail. Test scores, again, fell even further there. Hopefully this utterly inane and idiotic poison ultimately stays relegated to California. Speaking of California, there is a new reparations bill leaving out a key ingredient, the actual cash itself. The proposed bill is calling for a formal apology from the governor, in this case, Gavin Newsom, who will be all too willing, of course, to give it. And they're calling for an apology for California's oh-so-very-troubled history of anti-black racism. And they're calling for financial aid for people. But, curiously, 
they actually leave out the amount of cash itself. They're leaving that to lawmakers to do so. Look, this is a pure, unvarnished exercise in virtue signaling. There is no compelling public policy reason whatsoever why California, which last time I checked is not exactly a Mississippi or an Alabama when it comes to, to their long and sordid history of oppressing black people. There is absolutely no reason whatsoever, given all of the garbage that is afflicting the Golden State, given all of the crime, given all of the homelessness, given all of the drug addicts, given all of the people fleeing, the fact they literally ran out of U-Hauls a year or two ago. They literally ran out of U-Hauls because people couldn't wait to get rid of that blue hellhole. Given all of that, you guys are really focusing on a reparations bill and you're forgetting to put in the most important part, the actual amount of money that these people are going to get. Man, I mean, useless would be a polite way to describe that. Finally, some sad news from this past week. Overnight this past Monday into Tuesday saw the passing away of a country music icon. A man by the name of Toby Keith. Those of you who are country music fans know Toby Keith probably all too well. He was probably my single favorite country music artist. I, I am a diehard country music fan. It's basically all I listen to in my car. I own seven pairs of cowboy boots. I go to country concerts, the rodeo, all that stuff whenever I can there. What an icon. What an absolute icon. An incredible American patriot with songs like Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue, which famously came out after 9-11. He performed for, for, for the American troops overseas countless times. He was a huge supporter of USO and the men serving in uniform overseas all around the world there. And by all accounts, he, he was just a good guy. He was certainly one heck of a performer. I saw him live only one time in New Jersey, of all places. The year was 2016. Kind of wish I saw him down in Texas or Oklahoma, where he was from, or something like that. But no, I actually waited till I was in New Jersey, of all places, to see him. Man, what a show he put on. I, I don't think I've ever seen that many American flags, that many people dressed up in patriotic regalia, the trucks all decked out in the red, white, and blue. I, I just don't think I've ever been to a spectacle quite like that. May his memory be a blessing, and perhaps most importantly, may his legacy and his songs continue to inspire patriotism from this generation right unto the next generation. God bless you, sir. The Josh Hammer Show.